What an awesome song, inviting God's presence to be here amongst us. But you know what happens when the power and the presence of God comes? Remember what happened to Isaiah? Woe is me! I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst a people of unclean lips. And he, he, he was terrified by the presence of the Lord. And I believe that if we want the presence of the Lord to come, we need to be terrified of our sin. Right? We are unholy people, and we can't abide by His presence. So I'd like to just lead us in a, in a prayer of confession before we go into the reading of His Word, and then we'll ask, also ask God to bless His Word. So let's pray in contrition. Father, we, like Isaiah, we, we realize that we are not worthy of your presence. We are a sinful people. We are concerned about our own business and not the business of God. We have unclean lips, Lord. We defile ourselves when we speak. We defile ourselves by what we say, what we do. Lord, your name is mocked sometimes because it's so bad. And so, Lord, we confess that we are sinful people. But, Lord, we also confess that you are the one who forgives sins, who washes sins away, who cleanses and makes whole by the blood of Christ. And so, Lord, we come boldly into your presence because you've washed us and cleansed us of all unrighteousness. And you've made us your holy saints. And so, Lord, we come into your presence. We ask, Lord, that you would come into this place, that you would anoint your word, that it would speak to us. Lord, I pray that you would anoint me as I speak your word, that it would be spoken in power and in truth, and that it would impact our lives, Lord. Help us not to be uh, just hearers of the word only, but, Lord, may we be doers of the word. Lord, come into this place. Lord, I pray that you would fill me with your spirit so that I might speak your word powerfully. Oh, Lord, come. Oh, Lord, come. Fill this place. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It was a heavily uh, big lineup because there was this commercial flight flying out of Denver that had been canceled, and all the passengers had to go back to the ticket booth and reschedule a flight. And so it was very busy, and people were getting frustrated. They weren't getting to where they wanted to be. And finally, this one guy, he, he bursts out of the line. He runs up to the, to, to the, muscles his way through the crowd, gets up to the ticket clerk, slaps down his ticket and says, I need to be on this flight, and I need it in first class right away. And uh, the ticket lady smiles and say, Oh, I'd be happy to help you, sir, just after I help all of the rest of these people who were in line ahead of you. And he says, Do you know who I am? In a very threatening voice, loud enough for like everybody to hear. And uh, the, the lady uh, smiles sweetly, grabs the, the public intercom and, and speaks into it. Attention, everyone, broadcasting it through the whole terminal. We have a man at the gate who doesn't know who he is. If anyone would like to help him with his identity, could you please come to the gate and help him out? (laughs) And of course, everybody's cheering. They're all like, this is great. It's fantastic. You know, uh, today we're starting a, a, a sermon series called Identity Theft. This poor lad didn't know who he was. But you know what? 
there's a lot of Christians who don't know who they are. There's a lot of people who the devil has stolen their identity. And there is someone who wants to steal your identity. He wants to take what is really rightfully yours and, and take it away from you. And normally we think of identity theft, we think of you know, extortion, personal information, scams, uh, phishing, all that stuff that goes on the internet. Uh, it's like a huge problem in Canada. Jessica uh, Gunson, intake unit manager at the RCMP uh, Anti-Fraud Center, she says, Canadians lost $21 million related to identity theft in 2018. That is up from 11.7 million in 2017. I hate to know what the numbers are for 2019. I mean, I don't know about you, but I've gotten way more phone calls claiming to be, you know, like crazy things, like I'm, I'm, you know, the government's suing me and I need to respond and blah blah blah. It's like crazy. They're out there and they're stealing our money. So yes, people want to steal your identity so they can take your money. But there's something far worse than people stealing your identity to take your money. It's the one who wants to steal your personal understanding of who you really are. It's an insidious attack on believers. The enemy of our souls, he wants to have, he wants us to have an identity crisis. The devil is out to steal our our identity. Jesus said, the devil has come, he's a thief, and he only has come to steal and kill and destroy. That's the work of the devil, to, to thievery, stealing, killing, maiming. He wants to cripple the Christian's confidence. Your authority, he wants to take it away. He wants to take away your power and say, oh, you don't have any power, you're not going to make it. And so many ideas... You know, he doesn't want you to be strong in the battle. In fact, many Christians, he's already kind of won this war with many Christians. There's a lot of Christians, they don't even realize they're in a battle. They're just sitting on the sidelines. Because the devil's managed to steal their identity. And therefore, he's just keeping them on the ropes. A Christian, Christians so often are completely focused on the defense of their faith. Oh, I'm being attacked by everybody, and I got to defend my position, and I'm gonna. And yet, they're up against the rope, just getting pummeled. <laughs> and you know, as long as the devil can keep you in his corner or up against the ropes, you have no impact in the world. You have no impact on his kingdom, and he's quite happy to have you cowering in the corner, have us cowering in the corner, not knowing who we are. You know. Uh, Christians on the defense is really an ineffective Christian. It's why I really don't like that term apologetics. You know, apologetics is, is a, a, the defense of the gospel. But, you know, it sounds like you're apologizing for the gospel when you use the word apologetics. I just like, I don't like that word. You know, it doesn't sound like Christ church charging the gates of hell. It just it sounds like an apology. And like it or not, I have studied apologetics, and I, I'm, I, I'm excited about the art. I just don't like the word. <laughs> the devil can make us feel like underdogs. Do you ever feel like the underdog in our society? Like the whole of society is kind of against what you stand for? They don't really like it when you say, well, I, I don't think women should have the right to abort their children. They don't like it when you say that. When you say, well, you know, I think we're all born in sin, and, 
And uh, homosexuality is one of the sins that people are born with. People don't like it when you say that. They're just like, whoa, what? How can you say that? You know, he was born with it. Yeah, that's right. I was born with sin too. I know exactly what sin is and I have to keep away from it. And, and, you know, so so many people just get all uptight and, and they make us feel like we're out of touch with reality, that we are from some bygone era and that we really don't know what we're doing, what we're talking about, and that we're out of step with reality. You see, that's what the devil would like Christians to think, or at least question, like, am I really, am I off? Like, all these people are saying that I'm wrong. Maybe I am off. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe, maybe science has proven something here. Maybe. No, you're not wrong, but the devil wants you to feel wrong. The devil wants you to feel like you're out of place. The devil wants you to be, feel like you're out of step. But you know what? You're not the one out of step. It's the world that's out of step with God. And you, and you know, at first I called this sermon not out of step. And then I realized I should call it, no, in step. And you and I, those who follow Christ, we're in step with God. And that's the more important thing. Not whether or not we're out of step with the world. You know, the Bible says, uh, Peter says, Be alert and, and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking whom to, desi- to devour. And the devil desires to steal our Christ-likeness. He wants to take that away from us so that we are not parading around like little Christs. That's the name, what, that's what Christians mean. Little Christ, and the devil wants to take that away from us and remove it. So in some ways, we've already started this series on the identity crisis when we looked into the book of Haggai. Remember, as we studied the book of Haggai, there was a concern by, the, well, by God through the prophet that we are all busy about our own little kingdoms. We're busy with our gardens. We're busy with our houses. We're busy with our lives, our work, our, our families. We're all very busy, but we're neglecting the house of the Lord. And we talked about how we uh, often, as Christians, we can get so involved in our own little world that we neglect to build the kingdom of God. We neglect to build the spiritual temple that God is building with living stones. And that is something the devil wants us to do. He wants us to keep us busy with our own little world. Don't get don't get involved in all that church stuff. Don't get involved in talking with your neighbors. They're not going to understand you anyways. Uh, they're just going to ridicule you for the things you believe. So don't bother with that stuff. Just focus on your own little world. That's what the devil wants us to do. And we tend to do that. But Jesus says, seek his kingdom first, and all that other stuff is going to get looked after. All of the worldly things are going to be looked after if you seek God's kingdom first. So today I want to point out a big lie that the devil is kind of shoving down our throats. Uh, and um, the big lie is that Canada's morals are going down the toilet and there's nothing you can do about it. I know it feels that way sometimes. Uh, now the first part of that statement actually isn't that much of a lie. It's kind of true. Uh, Canada's morals, yeah, we're losing our morals every year. Our moral society is is falling apart, and uh, immorality is rampant, and it's celebrated in our country. And it seems to be against the law to say anything or do anything about it. 
to say something about someone else's morality seems to be a no-no in Canada. And so that first part of the statement is, is false, is true. But the second part, and there's nothing you can do about it, that's the lie. Now, it might feel like there's nothing you can do about it. I mean, tomorrow we have election day, right? And we're all going to the polls, and we're going to find out what, you know, we're going we're gonna to vote for the, what we think is the best candidate to do the most work in this area and hopefully change the morals of Canada. But you know what? I went and looked through all of the election platforms of all the main parties. They were talking about, you know, uh, ecological change and, and, you know, trying to do and economics and all kinds of stuff. I couldn't find anything on anybody's platform about morality in any way. And you know what? It, this has been years in the making. This has been happening for a long time. Nobody puts on their political platform a moral statement of any kind. They just shy away from it. But then when they get into power, they start making all kinds of moral decisions. They start saying it's fine to kill unborn children. They start saying it's fine to to uh, have, have marriage that's not a man and a woman. They say it's all kinds of these things that are fine. And we, we're left going, oh, well, okay. But instead, we keep electing people who remove religious freedom, who are bent on the normalization of sexually deviant behavior, we make it a hate crime to verbalize an objection to such behavior. We're teaching our children at the earliest possible age a gender theory, theory that is going to leave millions of people confused about who they are, questioning their own identity. Talk about identity theft. And you know what? That will probably keep happening. Because I don't think a law is going to change the morality of Canadians. It's not how it changes. It's not how, change, uh, how our society will change. You can't shove morality down people's throats. It just doesn't work. But it makes it feel sometimes like there's nothing we can do. Now, don't get me wrong. I admire William Wilberforce and what he did a couple hundred years ago uh, when it came to slave trading. And he single kind of single-handedly stood up for the slaves and i i admired uh um what's his name uh breston manning and stephen harper when they when well when stephen harper stood up for the proper definition of marriage i admire that i admire joel when he's saying hey i want to make a change i want to stand up for what's true I totally support these brave people in the ministry that God has called them to do. I concur with Edmund Blake Burke, who said the only thing necessary for triumph to for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. So I'm not saying, hey, don't get involved in politics. I think politics are important, and every every generation needs people who will stand up for the truth. But I don't think that's where the war is going to be won. I think the war is going to be won quite some different place. Um, you see, the growth of Christianity almost always happens under suppression. 
When Christians, when the church of Christ is under threat and is pushed down and pushed out of mainstream, that's when the church starts understanding what it's really about. That's when she starts understanding who she's called to be. See, Christ never came, uh, at least not the first time, he never came to be the ruler and the judge of the earth. That wasn't his purpose the first time. And he sends his people out into the world like sheep among wolves. He doesn't send them like bears to go out and conquer the world. That's not Jesus' desire. He's not into that at all. Uh, but do you remember what Daniel prophesied about King Nebuchadnezzar, the image that, that King Nebuchadnezzar saw in his dream? And, and that, that image represented all the kingdoms of the world. And, and Daniel prophesied that a rock was going to be cut out of the mountain without human hands, and it was going to come rolling down the mountain and smash into that idol and obliterate it, completely obliterate that, that image. And it represents the kingdom of Christ coming down. And at the end of the, the, the dream, it says the, the rock that was cut without human hands becomes a huge mountain that covers the whole earth. That's talking about the kingdom of God. And that's talking about it growing. Now, let me just take you through 2,000 years of church history in about 15 seconds, okay? We're going to do it with a slide, and we're going to show... Uh, so the, here's the, the first beginning of, of Christianity, 100 years later, 200 years, 300 years, 400. You can see it's growing around the Mediterranean, 500, 600 years. It's growing, moving into Europe, moving into Europe, moving into Europe, moving into Europe, is in Europe, focused on Europe, is in Europe. Okay, stop right there a sec. Okay. So for the first 500 years, you saw that Christianity spread like wildfire through the Mediterranean. And then it kind of consolidated itself up in Europe. And what do we got after 1,500 years of Christendom? We got a tiny little speck in Africa, a tiny, tiny little speck, the Church of St. Thomas in in, uh, India, and we have Europe converted to Christ. You see, for the last... 500 years, 600, about 1,000 years, the church gained power in Europe and became the dominant religion of Europe and had basically conquered Europe. And in fact, it became equal to, if not greater, than the uh, dominion of uh, kings in Europe. And it had carried all the power. And it, it kind of just sat there. It didn't spread out into the world. It didn't conquer other nations. It just, oh, it tried. Oh, yeah, we sent the, the, the uh, crusaders down to Jerusalem to try to capture it back from the Muslims. Did that successfully at the, at the cost of millions of lives and, and world, the world hating Christians. Uh, kind of not really, I don't think, what Jesus had in mind. It wasn't his kind of kingdom building. It wasn't about that. Jesus wasn't concerned with the kingdoms of this world. He already knew they were all going to get obliterated by his kingdom. And so what happened in 1942? 1942. Four, sorry, sorry, 1492. <laughs> Let's get the dates right. Yeah, you're all like going, what, what, what? 1492. Columbus sailed the ocean blue. Right. We knew that in elementary school, right? That's right. That's what happened in 1490. So right now you got the, uh, the dark brown represents the Catholic Church. The yellow represents the Orthodox Church. 
1942, who did Columbus take with him? 1492, did I get it wrong again? Ay, ay, ay. So in 1492, who did Columbus take with him to the New World? Pilgrims and missionaries from the Catholic Church. Franciscan monks and later on the, uh, what are those other guys called? The Jesuits. And so, next slide. It didn't take long for the Americas to start to convert to Christianity. Next slide, 100 years later, we have Catholicism spreading all over South America and Central America like wildfire, just spreading. You know, sometimes the Protestants feel all smug and say, hey, we've got missionaries. But you know what? Long before the Protestants came along, the Catholics were, were evangelizing the world. And you might say, oh, those Catholics, they're, you know, like, well, I don't care what you think about Catholicism. There were some men of God who believed in Jesus Christ and took the gospel at risk to their own lives, daringly into all of the Americas with great power. God was with them, and God blessed that ministry. And, uh, you know, and you know, I know that we don't agree with all that the Catholic Church teaches, but I believe that some of these missionaries were empowered by the Holy Spirit to bring the gospel to people, and they were genuinely converted. Got a little bit messy later on, but anyways, we're not gonna we're not gonna critique the the Catholic Church just right yet. 1600s, 1700s, and look at that. The Orthodoxy spreads across Russia, and Catholic Church is building now. Uh, but during this time, 1700s, what are the 1700s known for? The Church is losing power in Europe all through the 1700s. It's, it's being really decimated by, by rationalism and many different things. And the rise of secularism is happening. But in the middle of that, the Protestant church has been born. And the 18, 1800s looks like this. It starts spreading through North America and through some of Europe. And then 1900s, boom. Protestantism goes crazy, takes over all of North America and huge chunks of uh, uh, South Africa uh, and also moving now into South America in in a huge way. And people are coming to know the Lord and and the gospel is spreading. Brings us to about 2000, which is today. This is what what Christ's kingdom looks like today. It's growing all over the world. But there's this huge hole in the middle of the world. And there's, uh, as the uh, Koreans like to say, you know, this map's not very accurate because South Korea is hugely Christian and it's not even showing up on here. But anyways, they are saying, we're going to take, the gospel has moved from Jerusalem. I don't have a long enough stick, but Jerusalem up there, and it's moved that way. And now it's circumvented the whole globe and now Korea has come to know Christ and there's millions of Chinese Christians and it's exploding over there and it's moving all the way around the globe back to Jerusalem. Exciting stuff. So what do we learn though from all of what I'm saying here? The church of Jesus Christ has grown dramatically when it has not been in control of earthly governments. And when it was in control of earthly governments, it stagnated big time. 
and just about stopped dead and would not go beyond Europe and would only go as far as its, as its military might would go, would take it. And that's not Jesus' picture of his church. It's not a physical army going out and destroying people. It's an army of people who are able to destroy the kingdom's strongholds in the spiritual realm. And Jesus made that absolutely clear. The lie of the devil is that we are out of sync with the world and that, that we are losing the battle for the power and authority in government. Well, maybe we are, but so what? Jesus never built his kingdom on earthly government power. He never built his kingdom on the laws of, of the kingdoms of this earth. He has always intended that his kingdom be brought to power through the grassroots method, through people, through people's lives being transformed, and by their transformed life, transforming other lives, and on and on and on. That's how his kingdom has always been empowered. Um, Let's not forget what Paul told the Corinthian church. I'm just going to read this passage. It's fairly long. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where then is the wise person? Where then is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of this world? So when you think, of, our, of Canada thinking that it's so wise in all these things that it's saying, like we're a cutting-edge country, we're, we're doing all these new forays into the area of morality. and That's the wisdom of the world, my friend. For since the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. You might feel like a fool sharing Christ with your neighbor. You might feel like a fool, but I have shared Christ with people and felt like this is, they're not going to believe this and then led dozens and dozens of people to faith in Christ because the message of the gospel is powerful. Even though it sounds kind of foolish, kind of weird to people, it has power. It is the power of Christ. Jews demand for signs. Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, think not, think, think of what you were when you were first called. Not many of you were wise by human standards, not many influential, not many of you by, of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. He chose the weak things of this world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world, the despised things, things that are not, to nullify the things that are, so that no one might boast before him. And it is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become to us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. I love that passage, because it puts things in proper perspective. 
it puts things like, oh yeah, you might be feeling like you're trampled, you might be feeling like you're nobody, you might feel like you know, you're not very smart, you're not very wise, but actually you have the secret to wisdom and power. And it's found in Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. Amen? Amen. Now, sometimes I think we get the feeling that we are like, you know, I'm going to stand resolute in my fight against the immorality that's coming, flowing my way. And we might stand on our soapbox and say how evil people are and condemn them. You know, I don't know what we might do. And we might feel like we're standing resolute against the power of this immorality coming at us. You might feel like this guy uh, standing on the edge of Niagara Falls. You know, like, you think he's holding back the flood? I don't think so. I think he's about to get pushed over, you know. And he, he's just standing there. Just stop it right there. No, no, a little further, a little further. Um, stop it right there. Just hold that frame. Do you ever feel like that guy? I sometimes do. I really do. I'm not going to be, you know, some little twig just flowing over the falls of immorality and just going along with everybody. No, I'm going to stand resolute. I'm going to stand here. And I feel like, oh, man, I'm not holding anything back. I'm not stopping anything. I'm not stopping anybody. This is just, you know, me little doing nothing. Well, you, you know how they rescued this guy? They opened a bunch of sluice gates to redirect the Niagara River down into the hydro stations and past them. And then they, they raised the level of the other sluice boxes to stop the flow of the river from getting to this guy, and then they rescued him. But guess what? That's exactly what Jesus Christ is calling us to do. We don't stand at the brink and go, no, 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 no. That's not what we do. We go to the source. We go to where is the source of the immorality coming from? It's from people who don't know Christ. And how else are they supposed to live? How else are they supposed to think? If they can justify immorality, of course they're going to justify immorality. You can't beat them over the head and say, no, no, God doesn't like that. God doesn't like that. It's not going to do anything because they don't know Christ. What has Christ called us to do? Go back to the source and share the gospel with people. Convince them that their sin makes them unworthy before God. With the power of the Holy Spirit, share with them that Jesus Christ died for their sins so that they don't have to live in it any longer. And He can give them the power to change. God God is for us. He wants us to change. And then they'll experience the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's the only thing that will stop this tide from flowing. That's the only thing. It's going back into doing what the church has always done. Being the voice of Jesus Christ in this this terrible world. Being the ones who are standing for what is truth. Walking in step with the Master. Walking in step with Jesus Christ Himself. Not saying, oh, well, I I can sort of become part of the world so they'll listen. No, 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 no. We walk in step with Christ. But we don't need to shout and scream against the world. We need to go and share Christ with the world and it's only then that the tide of immorality will slow down or stop it's only when revival hits and people are converted by the thousands that morality will rise to the top again 
And that's what the church is called. We have a much bigger job than running the country. Way bigger job. Much more important. And it's saving the country. That's our job. That's what Christ called us to do. I mean, we don't save the country personally. We don't die for the country personally. But as all of us work together, we change the flavor of the country. And I'd say that the church has been missing the mark for a while. And uh, it does feel like sometimes we are fighting this battle that doesn't seem like we're winning. But that doesn't change who we are and what we're called to do. And I believe the church of Jesus Christ rises up to meet the challenge whenever it's challenged this way. We don't shake our fists at governments and, or even the principalities of the powers that be. We have the truth. And we use the truth to impact the world. Does the devil know that you're around? Does he tremble when you get out of bed? The devil is hell-bent on changing your understanding of the whole situation. And he wants you to be kept out of the picture. He wants all of us to be kept out. He wants us to be immobilized by fear and pushed aside. And there's millions that have, had, have a warped sense of who they are. You need to understand your, your identity, who you are. This is what authority is all about. Remember when Jesus came to the disciples and he said to them, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. You think the government of Canada has a lot of authority? It's nothing. It's nothing compared to the authority of Christ. He's got all authority. <laughs> there, and and I'm, not, I'm not saying don't vote. We do have to stand up and make our, make our voices known in, in, at the polls tomorrow, please. You know? We do need to stand up for what is right. We do need to say something. You know, uh, when Hitler came to power, the Christians tried to say something, but they didn't get it out very loudly. And we do need to say something, but that's not our main task. Our main task is to be that subversive grassroots people. Don't, we don't take the government by storm. We take the people. And we bring them into the fold of Jesus Christ. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely, I'm with you always. You get about doing the Master's business, the Master comes along. He's with you when you get about His business. To the very end of the age. You know, at the very end of the age, there's going to be a trumpet sound. And uh, there was a loud voice in heaven that will declare, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. Never forget the end. It's coming. And Christ will reign over the earth. <clears throat> now, what the devil does is he wants to confuse us. And he, he, he does, he's quite good at this. In the Bible, there's a question that's asked. Who are you? That's about identity. Guess who asked the question? A demon. A demon asked, who are you? You see, there was these seven brothers. They were the sons of Sceva. And they were going around, and they were commanding demons to leave people. And they would say something like, 
in the name of Jesus Christ, whom Paul preaches, we command that you leave this person. And apparently the demons were leaving until they got to this one guy. And the demon responded and he said, well, Jesus I know, Peter and Paul I know, but who are you? And guess what? The sons of Sceva didn't have an answer. They didn't know who they were. Now, I don't know whether they were followers of Christ who didn't know who they were, or if they weren't followers of Christ just trying to do a magic trick by saying the same things that Paul and Jesus taught. I don't know exactly. But the demon was pretty sure they didn't know who they were. And the demon caused the the demon-possessed man to get up and beat the crap out of these poor men, send them off bleeding and, and all beat up. And... And that's sort of the end of the story. So what about you when the devil comes along and says, who are you? You know who you are? Yeah? Who are you? Daughter of the king. Who are you? Who are you? Child of God. Redeemed. Do you have the power and authority of Jesus Christ? Are you an ambassador for the King of Kings? Yeah, that's who we are. So if the devil ever comes along and says, who are you? What do you think you're doing? I hope you have the answer. And that's what we're going to be studying for the next number of weeks as, so that we know who we are. We have an identity. This, this, this little poster I'm going to show you, uh, it's showing up everywhere. Be the kind of woman that when you get up in the morning, the devil thinks, oh no, she's up. <laughs> Don't you love that? The devil's like, oh no, she's up, oh no. You know, and all the demons go running off. Ah! They're afraid. Why? Because you're a daughter of the king. You know, you can, you can get this, this thing on, on a mug. You can get it on a, on a t-sweatshirt, on a thermos, on a handbag, on a pillow, uh, on a t-shirt, desk plaque, a curtain, a tumblers, a wall decal, I mean, a clutch, uh, a wall plaque. I mean, you can get it on pretty much anything, you know. It's, it's, it's very popular saying, you know. But is it a popular reality? Does the devil quake, ladies, when you get out of bed in the morning? And does the devil go, oh, no. I know who she is. I've seen her around. She's a prayer warrior. She's a gospel message giver. Oh no, what are we going to do to stop her? I love it. Who do you represent? It should be the devil cowering in the corner of the ring, not you. Amen? Amen. Now, some of you guys are saying, hey, what about us? You know, like, so Tony Evans, of course, he goes, he just takes the phrase and he gives it to the man. Kingdom, a kingdom man is the kind of man that when his feet hit the floor every morning, the devil says, oh no, he's up. Where's my slide? Next slide. Yeah, well, he doesn't use the word no, he uses, I, I deleted it. <laughs> Kind of, you know, actually, I've already said the word, so maybe I should just leave it in. Anyways, here's what Tony Evans says. Oh. 
kind of flowery. A kingdom man is a man of influence. When he goes public, it is clear that he belongs to God, operates under divine authority, and is not ashamed of his spiritual identity. A kingdom man is not a secret agent Christian. He's not a spiritual CIA representative. No, he goes public. His surrender to Jesus Christ becomes clearly identifiable. Like a man wearing a jersey of his favorite team, it's clear who he supports and where his commitment lies. The kingdom man goes public. His neighborhood knows that he belongs to God. The folks at work who work with him know that he operates with integrity on the job, has high character, and does not compromise truth for popularity. When a kingdom man goes public, it is clear that he's trying to influence other men and boys to become that kind of man by providing leadership, correction, by providing uh, support, how he treats women with dignity and respect, not being abusive and dishonoring because he's leveraging influence. And when a kingdom man does that, when it becomes clear that he represents another king in another kingdom, not just in church on Sunday, but Monday through Saturday, in all of his affairs of life, then it becomes obvious that God has wrapped himself around this man. And this man is not ashamed to be identified with him. And so what is your influence? How many other people know that you belong to Jesus Christ and have surrendered your life to him? How many people are aware that his word controls your decisions? Because until that happens, you're not yet a kingdom man. Until you go public, nobody knows it but you. Go public and let people know you're not ashamed of your relationship with Jesus Christ. You know, I don't want to make it about the guys and the girls. And Sorry guys, you, you can't get Tony Evans statements on flowers or on pillows or on you know handbags. Or, it just isn't there. But the deal is, whether you're a man or a woman... There's a devil cowering when you're around. Is he taking flight? Does he feel like you're a challenger to his kingdom? Hey, We are the sons and daughters of Christ the King. And he is making a foray into enemy territory. And he's asked you and me to head the charge. But if we think we're on the losing side of this thing. If we think that for a minute that we're going to be overturned and rejected and demoralized and all that stuff, we're not going to even bother getting out of our corner and into the fight. I want to introduce you to C.T. Studd. What a name, eh? C.T. Studd. (laughs) Who's this dude? (laughs) But this is what he said. I pray that when I die... All of hell will rejoice that I am no longer in the fight. Oh, it makes my goosebumps stand up in my arms. I pray that about me. I want the devil to be happy when I die. Because <laughs> I'm no longer in the fight. That's an awesome statement. That's what C.T. Studd's statement. You know, C.T. Studd was 
actually quite a popular guy. I mean, he lived in England at the end of the 19th century. And by 1882, he was considered one of the best cricket players in the world. And he was probably the best-known athlete of his day in England. However, in 1884, after his brother George became seriously ill, C.D. was confronted by the question, what is all the fame and flattery worth when a man must face eternity? It got to his heart. And as a result, C.D. gave his life fully to God. This is what he stated later. My heart was no longer in the game. He wasn't interested in playing cricket anymore. It was the, the sport of England. It just wasn't in it. I wanted to win souls for the Lord. I knew that cricket would not last. The honor would not last. Nothing in this world would last. But it is worthwhile living for the world to come. Amen? And as a result of his brother's illness and the effect that it had on C.T.'s life, he, he decided to become a missionary. Uh, against the wishes, wishes of his family, and uh, along with six others from Cambridge, he, he set out as a pioneer missionary with Hudson Taylor in uh, the China Inland Mission. And of his, his work, he later proclaimed, some want to live within the sound of the church or the chapel bell, but I want to run a, wet, a rescue mission within a yard of hell. I love that statement. I want to run a rescue mission within a yard of hell. Amen, brother. He said, real Christians revel in desperate ventures for Christ, expecting from God great things and attempting the same with great exhilaration. I mean, he's just like, I want to get out there and do the work. I don't care what it costs. You know, this this man, he, he truly gave hell a run for its money. I mean... The devil tried to sidetrack him right at the get-go. Right when he just had committed his life to, to Christ, he inherited $145,000. Now, in today's money, that's about $3.5 million. What would you do if you were in your early 20s and you were given a check for $3.5 million? Would you buy a yacht, big house? What would you do? You know what C.D. Studd started doing? Writing big checks to missions agencies. Big checks. And after he'd written a bunch of big checks, he gave the rest to his fiancée and said, here, here, here's the rest of the money. Uh, you know, you look after it. And she said, oh, no, C.T., we can't keep this money. What did Jesus say to the rich young ruler? He said, sell it all. So let's start with a clean slate. And they gave all of that money away, all of it. Even though they were about to go and be missionaries, they gave their money away. That would have come in handy as support later down the road. But no, they wanted to be dependent on the one who owned the cattle on a thousand hills. And they just gave it all away. And I'm like, oh, man, that's incredible. Um, after 10 years in China, CT and his family began a ministry in India. They were hoping the climate would be better for... Uh, his asthma. And the Lord used them greatly. Every week, people were being converted to Christ over and over. And after nearly a decade in India, Charles heard about the urgent need for missionaries in the wild, unexplored interior of Africa. Oh, I'm going there. He's, he was compelled to go there where no Christian had ever gone before. And so he went 
to the fiercest place on earth in order to take the gospel to those who needed to hear. It was later said about him, C.T.'s life stands as some rugged Gibraltar, a sign to all succeeding generation that is worthwhile to lose all the world can offer and stake everything on the world to come. His life will be an internal rebuke for the easygoing Christianity. He has demonstrated what it means to follow Christ without counting the cost and without looking back. C.T. Studd was bold, brass, intense, fearless, fully expecting every believer to be just like he was. And when he spoke, he challenges his audience with the words, Come then, let us restore the last chord of Christianity, heroism, to the world and the crown of the world to Christ. Christ himself asks you, Will you be a Melanger? Anyways, or a militant, some, you know, lazy guy. Uh, to your knees, men, and to your Bible, decide at once, don't hedge, time flies, chase your insults to, cease your insults to God, quit consulting flesh and blood, stop your lame lying and cowardly excuses, and list. I love this guy, C.T. Studd. Yeah, go for it, brother. <laughs> Uh, C.T. Studd believed and practiced aggressive, militant, courageous faith. We are frittering away, he said, time and money in a multiplicity of conventions, conferences, retreats, when the real need is to go straight and full steam into battle. Difficulties, diseases, dangers, death or divisions don't deter from executing God's will. When someone says there's a lion in the way, the real Christian promptly says, ah, that's hardly enough inducement for me. I want a bear or two to make it worthwhile for me to go. <laughs> so, so he summarized it with that statement. I pray that when I die, all of hell will rejoice that I am no longer in the fight. What about you, friends? Are you in the fight to that regard? Does the devil quake? When you get up in the morning, when you go, I'm going to do something for God today, may God empower me. When you pray, do the demons scurry? Are you calling on the Almighty God to come and do His work through you, around you, for His kingdom, wherever you find yourself? I pray that God will empower us to do that. In a few minutes, we're, we're going to uh, spend some time in prayer together. We're going to have the worship team come and lead us in a closing song. And then we're going to, I'm just going to ask you to get in groups of four or five, and we're going to pray for our country. And we're going to pray for uh, the election tomorrow. And I, I just want you to pray in small groups. Just turn around, find someone to pray with. If you really have to go, find that our service will be dismissed before that. But I want to encourage you, to call on heaven and call on the authority and power that we have for this election, but not just for the election. I want you to call upon God for Canada and her people that God has called us to reach, to stem the tide of immorality. God is calling us to be like C.T. Studd, not worry about being near the church. Go within a yard of hell and go and share with people the good news that God loves them. Amen? So can we pray that together in a few minutes? Worship team, come on up and and lead us in our closing hymn, and then after that, we'll pray together.